Chapter 21. Once his plan was laid, a plan that would rid him of both Roland and Peter forever, Flag wasted no time. He first used all of his wizardry to make the king well again. He was delighted to find that his magic potions worked better than they had for a long, long time. It was another irony. He earnestly wanted to make Roland better so the potions worked, but he wanted to make the king better so he could kill him and make sure everyone knew it was murder. It was really quite funny when you stopped to think it over. On a windy night, less than a week after the king's hacking cough had ceased, Flag unlocked his desk, took out the teak box. He murmured well done to the cleffa carrot, which squeaked mindlessly in reply, and then lifted the heavy lid and took out the smaller box inside. He used the key around his neck to open it and took out the packet that contained the dragon sand. He had bewitched this packet, and it was immune to the dragon sand's terrible power, or so he thought. Flag took no chances and removed the packet with a small pair of silver tweezers. He laid it beside one of the king's goblets on his desk. Sweat stood out on his forehead in great round drops, for this was ticklish work indeed. One little mistake and he would pay for it with his life. Flag went out into the corridor that led to the dungeons and began to pant. He was hyperventilating. When you breathe rapidly, you fill your whole body with oxygen, and you can hold your breath for a long time. During the crucial stage of his preparations, Flag did not mean to breathe at all. There would be no mistakes, big or little. He was having too much fun to die. He took a final great gasp of clean air from the bare window just outside the door to his apartment and re-entered his rooms. He went to the envelope, took his dagger from his belt, and delicately slid it open. There was a flat piece of obsidian which the magician used as a paperweight on his desk. In those days, obsidian was the hardest rock known. Using the tweezers again, he grasped the packet, turned it upside down, and poured out most of the green sand. He saved a tiny bit back, hardly more than a dozen grains, but this extra bit was extremely important to his plans. Hard as the obsidian was, the rock immediately began to smoke. Thirty seconds had passed now. He picked up the obsidian, careful not a, a single grain of the dragon sand should touch his skin. If it did, it would work inward until it reached his heart and set it on fire. He tilted the stone over the goblet and poured it in. Now, quickly, before the sand could begin to eat the glass, he poured in some of the king's favorite wine, the same sort of wine Peter would be taking to his father about now. The sand dissolved immediately. For a moment, the red wine glimmered a sinister green, and then it returned to its usual color. Fifty seconds. Flag went back to his desk. He picked up the flat rock and took his dagger by the handle. Only a few grains of dragon sand had touched the blade when he slit the paper, but already they were working their way in, and evil little streamers of smoke rose from the pox of the audience steel. He carried both the stone and the dagger out into the hallway. Seventy seconds, and his chest was beginning to cry for air. Thirty feet down the hallway, which led to the dungeon, if you followed it far enough, a trip no one in Delane wanted to make, there was a grating in the floor. Flag could hear gurgling water, and if he had not been holding his breath, he would have smelled a foul stench. This was one of the castle's sewers. He dropped both the rock and the blade into it and grinned at the double splash in spite of his pounding chest. Then he hurried back to the window, leaned far out, and took breath after breath of gasping air. 
When he had his wind back, he returned to his study. Now only the tweezers, the packet, and the glass of wine stood on the desk. There was not so much as a grain of sand on the tweezers, and the bit of sand left inside the bewitched packet could not harm him so long as he took reasonable care. He felt he had done everything indeed well so far. This work was by no means done, but it was well begun. He bent over the goblet and inhaled deeply. There was no danger now. When the sand was mixed with a liquid, its fumes became harmless and undetectable. Dragon sand made deadly vapors only when it touched a solid such as stone, such as flesh. Flag held the goblet up to the light and admired its bloody glow. A final glass of wine, my king, he said, and laughed until the two-headed parrot screamed in fear. Something to warm your guts. He sat down, turned over his hourglass, and began to read from a huge, huge book of spells. Flag had been reading from this book, which was bound in human skin for a thousand years and had gotten through only a quarter of it. To read too long of this book written on the high distant plains of Leng by a madman named Alhared was to risk madness. An hour, just one hour. When the top half of his hourglass was empty, he could be sure Peter would have come and gone. An hour. And he could take Rowland his final glass of wine. For a moment, Flagg looked at the bone-white sand slipping smoothly through the waist of the hourglass, and then he bent calmly over his book. Chapter 22. Rowland was pleased and touched that Flag should have brought him a glass of wine that night when he went to bed. He drank it off in two large gulps and declared that it had warmed him greatly. Smiling inside his hood, Flag said, I thought it would, your highness. Chapter 23. Whether it was fate or luck that caused Thomas to see Flag with his father that night is another question you must answer for yourself. I only know that he did see and that it happened in large part because Flagg had been at pains over the years to make a special friend of this friendless, miserable boy. I'll explain in a moment, but first I must correct a wrong idea you may have about magic. In stories of wizardry, there are three kinds that are usually spoken of almost carelessly, as if any second-rate wizard could do them. These are turning lead into gold, changing one's shape, and making oneself invisible. The first thing you should know is that real magic is never easy. And if you think it is, just try to make your least favorite aunt disappear the next time she comes to spend a week or two. Real magic is hard, and although it is easier to do evil magic than good, even bad magic is tolerably hard. Turning lead into gold can be done, once you know the names to call on, and if you can find someone to show you exactly the right trick of splitting the loaves of lead. Shape changing and invisibility, however, are impossible or so close to it that you might as well use the word. From time to time, Flag, who was a great eavesdropper, had listened to fools tell tales about young princes who escaped the clutches of evil genies by uttering a simple magic word and popping out of sight, or beautiful young princesses. In stories, they were always beautiful, although Flag's experience had been that most princesses were spoiled rotten, and, as the end products of long inbred family lines, Ugly as sin and stupid in the bargain. But these princesses in stories tricked great ogres into becoming flies, which they then quickly swatted. In most stories, the princesses were also good at swatting flies, although most of the princesses Flag had seen 
wouldn't have been able to swat a fly during a cold windowsill in December. In stories, it all sounded easy. In stories, people changed their shapes or turned themselves into walking window panes all the time. In truth, Flag had never seen either trick done. He had once known a great Audian magician who believed he had mastered the trick of changing his shape. But after six months of meditation and nearly a week of incantations in a series of agonizing body postures, he uttered the last awesome spell and succeeded only in making his nose nearly nine feet long and driving himself insane. There had been fingernails growing out of his nose, and Flag remembered with a grim little smile, great magician or not, that man had been a fool. Invisibility was likewise impossible, at least as far as Flag himself had been able to determine. Yet it was possible to make oneself dim. Yes, dim. That was really the best word for it. Although others sometimes came to mind, ghostly, transparent, unobtrusive, invisibility was out of his reach. But by first eating a pizzle, then reciting a number of spells, it was possible to become dim. And when one was dim, a servant approached along a passageway, only simply drew aside and stood still and let the servant pass. In most cases, the servant's eyes would drop to his own feet or suddenly find something interesting to look at in the ceiling. If one passed through a room, conversation would falter. People would look momentarily distressed as if all were having gas pains at the same time. Torches, wall sconces grew smoky, and candles sometimes blew out. It was necessary to actually hide when one was dim, only if one saw someone whom he knew well. For whether one was dim or not, these people almost always saw. Dimness was useful, but it was not invisibility. On the night Flag had poisoned the wine to Rollin, he first made himself dim. He did not expect to see anyone he knew, it was after nine o'clock now, and the king was old and unwell, and days were short. The castle went to bed early. When Thomas is king, Flag thought, carrying the wine swiftly through the corridors, there will be parties every night. He already has his father's taste for drink. Although he favors wine rather than beer or mead, it should be easy enough to introduce him to a few stronger drinks. After all, am I not his friend? Yes, when Peter is safely out of the way in the needle... And Thomas is king, there will be great parties every night, until the people in the alleys and the baronies are choked enough to rise in bloody revolt. Then there will be one final party, the greatest of all. But I don't think Thomas will enjoy it. Like the wine I'm bringing his father tonight, that party will be extremely hot. He did not expect to see anyone he knew, and he didn't. Only a few servants passed him, and they drew away from the place where he stood almost absently, as if they had felt a cold draft. All the same, someone saw him. Thomas saw him through the eyes of Neener, the dragon his father had killed long ago. Thomas was able to do this because Flag himself had taught him the trick. Chapter 24 The way his father had rejected the gift of the boat had hurt Thomas deeply and after that he tended to keep clear of his father. All the same, Thomas loved Rowland and badly wanted to make him happy the way Peter had made him happy. Even more than that, he wanted to make his father love him the way he had loved Peter. In fact, Thomas would have been happy if their father had loved him even half as much. Trouble was, 
Peter had all the good ideas first. Sometimes Peter tried to share his ideas with Thomas, but to Thomas the ideas sounded either silly, until they worked, or he feared he wouldn't be able to do his share of the work. As when Peter had made his father a set of bendo men three years ago. I'll give father something better than a bunch of stupid old game pieces, Thomas had said haughtily. But what he was really thinking was that if he couldn't make his father a simple wooden sailboat, he would never be able to make something as difficult as 20-man bendo army. So Peter made the game pieces alone over a period of four months. The infantrymen, the knights, the archers, the fusilers, the general, the monk, and of course Rowland had loved them, even though they were a bit clumsy. He had immediately put away the jade bendo set the great Elander had carved for him forty years before and put the one Peter had made for him in its place. When Thomas saw this, he crept, crept away to his apartment and went to bed, although it was still the middle of the afternoon. He felt as if someone had reached into his chest and cut off a tiny piece of his heart and made him eat it. His heart tasted very bitter to him, and he hated Peter more than ever, although part of him still loved his handsome older brother and always would. And although the taste had been bitter, he had liked it, because it was his heart. Now, there is the business of the nightly glass of wine. Peter had come to Thomas and said, I was thinking it would be nice if we brought Dad a glass of wine every night. Tom, I asked the steward, and he said we couldn't just give a bottle because he was um, asked to make an accounting to the chief vintner at the end of each six month. But he said we could pool some of our money and buy a bottle of the fifth barony vat, which is father's favorite, and it's really not expensive. We'd have lots of our allowance left over, and I think that's the stupidest idea I ever heard, Thomas burst out. All the wine belongs to father, all the wine in the kingdom. He can have as much of it as he wants. Why should we spend our money to give father something he already owns? We'll enrich that fat little steward. That's all we'll do. Peter said patiently, it will please him that we spend our money on it, even if it's something he already owns anyway. How do you know that? Simply maddeningly, Peter replied, I just do. Thomas looked at him scowling. How could he tell Peter that the chief vintner had caught him in the wine cellar stealing a bottle of wine just the month before? The fat little pig had given him a shaking and threatening to tell his father if Thomas didn't give him a gold piece. Thomas had paid tears of rage and shame standing in his eyes. If it had been Peter, you would have turned the other way and pretended not to see you slug, he thought. If it had been Peter, you would have turned your back because Peter is going to be king someday and I'll just be a prince forever. It also occurred to him that Peter never would have tried to steal the wine in the first place. But the truth of this thought only made him angrier at his brother. I just thought, Peter began. You just thought, you just thought, Thomas mimicked savagely. Well, go think somewhere else. When father finds out you paid the chief vintner for his own wine, he'll laugh at you and call you a fool. But Rowland hadn't laughed at Peter, hadn't called him a fool. He had called him a good son in a voice that was unsteady and almost weepy. Thomas knew because he had crept after when Peter took their father the wine that first night. He watched through the eyes of the dragon and saw it all. Chapter 25 If you had asked Flag straight out why he had shown Thomas that place and the secret passageway that led to it, he would not have been able to give you a very satisfactory answer. That was because he hadn't exactly known why he had done it. 
He had an instinct for mischief in his head, just as some people have a way with numbers or a clear sense of direction. The castle was very old, and there were many secret doors and passages in it. Flagg knew most of them. No one, not even he, knew all of them. But this was the only one he had ever shown Thomas. His instinct for mischief told him that this one might cause trouble, and Flagg simply obeyed his instinct. Mischief, after all, was Flagg's cake and pie. Every now and then, he would pop into Thomas' room and cry, Tommy, you look glum. I thought of something you might like to see. Want to go and have a look? He almost always said you look glum. Or, Tommy, you look a bit in the dumps. Tommy, or maybe you look like you just sat on a pinch bug. Because he had a knack of showing up when Thomas was feeling particularly depressed or blue, Flagg knew that Thomas was afraid of him, and Thomas would find an excuse not to go with him unless he particularly needed a friend and felt so low and unhappy he wouldn't be particular about which friend it was. Flagg knew this, but Thomas himself did not. His fear of Flagg ran deep. On the surface of his mind, he thought Flagg was a fine fellow, full of tricks and fun. Sometimes the fun was a bit mean, but that often suited Thomas' disposition. Do you think it's strange when Flagg would know something about Thomas that Thomas didn't know about himself? It really isn't strange at all. People's minds, and particularly the minds of children, are like wells, deep wells full of sweet water. And sometimes, when a particular thought is too unpleasant to bear, the person who has had that thought will lock it in a heavy box and throw it into that well. He listens for the splash, and then that box is gone. Except it is not, of course. Not really. And Flag, being very old and very wise, as well as very wicked, knew that even the deepest well has a bottom. And just because a thing is out of sight doesn't mean it's, that it's gone. It's still there, resting on the bottom. And he knew that the caskets, those evil, frightening ideas, are buried in might rot. And the nastiness inside may leak out after a while and poison the water. And when the well of the mind is badly poisoned, we call the result insanity. If the magician showed him scary things in the castle sometimes, he did it because he knew that the more frightened of him Thomas was, the more power he could gain over Thomas. And he knew that he could have that power because he knew something I've already told you, that Thomas was weak and often neglected by his father. Flagg wanted Thomas to be afraid of him, and he wanted to make sure that as the years passed, Thomas had to throw many of those locked boxes into the darkness inside him. If Thomas were to go insane at some point after he became king, well, what of it? It would make it easier for Flagg to rule and would make his power all the greater. How did Flagg know the right times to visit Thomas and to take him on these strange tours of the castle? Sometimes he had seen what happened to make Thomas sad or angry in his crystal. More often, he simply felt an urge to go to Thomas and heeded it. That instinct for mischief rarely led him wrong. Once he took Thomas high into the eastern tower. They climbed stairs until Thomas was panting like a dog, but Flagg never seemed to lose his breath. At the top of the door, there was a small entry, so small even Thomas had to crawl through it on his hands and knees. Beyond was a dark, rustling room with a single window. Flagg had led him to that window without a word, and when Thomas saw the view, the entire city of Delane, the near towns, then the hills which stood between the near hills and the eastern barony, marching off into the blue haze, he thought that the sight had been worth every stair his aching legs had climbed. His heart had swelled with the beauty of it, and he turned to thank Flagg 
but something about the white blur of the magician's face inside the hood had frozen the words on his lips. Now watch this, Blag said, and he held up his hand, and a spurt of blue flame rose from his index finger, and the rustling sound of the room, which Thomas had first taken for the sound of wind, turned into the rising whir of leathery wings. A moment later, Thomas was screaming and beating the air above his head as a blundered as he blundered blindly back toward the tiny door. The little round room at the top of the castle's eastern tower had the best view of Delane, save for the cell at the top of the needle, but now he understood why no one visited it. The room was infested with huge bats. Disturbed by the light Flag had raised, they whirled and swooped later after they were out and Flag had quieted the boy. Thomas, who hated bats, had been in hysterics. The magician insisted it was just a joke meant to cheer him. Thomas believed him, but for weeks after, he awoke screaming with nightmares in which bats, bats flapped around his head, got caught in his hair, and ripped at his face with their sharp claws and ratty teeth. On another excursion, Flag told, Flag told him that the king's treasure room was near, and he showed him the mounds of gold coins, tall stacks of gold bars, and deep bins marked emeralds, diamonds, rubies, fire dims, and so on. Are they really full of jewels? Thomas asked. Look and see, Flag said. He opened one of the bins and pulled out a handful of uncut emeralds. They sparkled wildly in his hand. My father's name, Thomas gasped. Oh, that's nothing. Look over here. Pirate treasure, Tommy. He showed Thomas a pile of booty from the encounter with the Audian pirates some 12 years ago. The Delane treasury was rich. The few treasure room clerks old, and this particular heap hadn't yet been sorted. Thomas gasped at heavy swords with jeweled hilts, daggers with blades that had been crusted with serrated diamonds so they would cut deeper, heavy kill balls made of rhodochrysite. All this belongs to the kingdom, Thomas said in an odd voice. It all belongs to your father, Flag replied, although Thomas had actually been correct. Someday it will all belong to Peter. And me, Thomas said with a ten-year-old's confidence. No, Flag said, just the same tinge of regret in his voice, just to Peter, because he's the oldest and he'll be king. He'll share, Thomas said, with the slightest tremor of doubt in his voice. Peter always shares. Peter's a fine boy, and I'm sure you're right. He'll probably share. But no one can make a king share, you know. No one can make a king do anything he doesn't want to do. He looked at Thomas to gauge the effect of this remark and then looked back at the deep, shadowy treasure room. Somewhere one of the aged clerks was droning on account of ducats. Such a lot of treasure and all for one man, Flag remarked. It's really something to think about, isn't it, Tommy? Thomas said nothing, but Flag had been well pleased. He saw Thomas was thinking about it, and he judged that another of those poisoned caskets was tumbling down into the well of Thomas' mind. Kerplunk. And that was indeed so. Later, when Peter proposed to Thomas that they share the expense of the nightly bottle of wine, Thomas had remembered the great treasure room and that all the treasure in it would belong to his brother. Easy for you to talk so blithely of buying wine. Why not? Someday you'll have all the money in the world. Then, about a year before he bought the, brought the poisoned wine to Thomas or to the king on an impulse, Flag had shown Thomas this secret passage. And on this one occasion, his usually unerring instinct for mischief might have led him astray. 
again, I'll leave it for you to decide.